Debate Me Al Gore. Hi, everybody. Brian Sussman here. Brian Sussman Show, Faith, Family, Freedom. My Twitter feed, Debate Me Al Gore, is back. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. We're going to talk about boiling oceans today. We're going to talk about the era of global boiling, because that's what the Secretary General of the United Nations is calling it. It's all a crock. It's a lie. It's yellow journalism. It's sensationalism. It's filthy rhetoric. We'll talk about that. But first, the Twitter feed. Please, if you enjoy these podcasts, if you want to support me in any way, shape, or form, just to show the fact that we're aligning on these issues, uh, please go to Twitter and follow me at Debate Me Al Gore. It's a Twitter feed. As you know, I've been silenced on so many media platforms. To the best of my knowledge, this Twitter feed disappeared years ago, as did my other uh, Twitter feed, which was just Brian Sussman. But nonetheless, uh, I, I don't even know how this exactly happened. I was on a social media site, and suddenly my Twitter feed just appeared. I, I saw the Debate Me Al Gore Twitter feed. I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Did somebody steal this from me? What is this? And took a few more steps and realized, no, this is my Debate Me Al Gore feed. I thought it had disappeared years ago. I tried logging in. None of my passwords worked. But to make a long story short, I finally got into the site. It's mine. I don't know what happened to my followers. Most of my former content is there. But I'm plowing into it now like nobody's business trying to regain this platform because... Twitter is a little more fair and balanced than it was back in the day, thanks to Elon Musk's ownership. I have no idea where Elon Musk stands on climate change. I know where he stands on Tesla vehicles, and that is he's making a boatload of money. But nonetheless, please, I urge you and I thank you for following me at Debate Me Al Gore. Let's talk about Al Gore for just a moment. Because Al Gore was the first person to use this fear appeal. Fear appeal. It's an appeal being made to the public with fear. That's what psychologists call it, fear appeals. He called, he said, we have boiling oceans. Well, and then, then the United, well, this was, this was all, I'm sure, planned. He used the term boiling oceans, and the United Nations picked up on it immediately and said, we have entered the era of boiling, or of global boiling. This is all a crock. The oceans are not boiling. That temperature would be 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's for starters. But you probably, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I would guess, if you asked most people, what's the temperature at which... Water begins to boil. Most people nowadays, especially maybe under 40, would not have an answer. It's 212 degrees Fahrenheit. You probably heard the news story about a temperature buoy off the coast of Florida recording a temperature of 101 degrees. The Associated Press couldn't help but turn on the yellow journalism by claiming the water temperature around the tip of Florida has hit triple digits, hot tub levels, Two days in a row, meteorologists say it could be the hottest seawater ever measured. Stop the press. First of all, hot tub levels. If you have a hot tub of 101, it's not a very warm hot tub. That's for starters. But this is the kind of language that they use. 
this crazy, flimsy, untethered rhetoric designed to put fear in your heart. The water temperature around the tip of Florida has hit triple digits. It was one buoy. Now, for those of you who have ever done any research, you know that if there's an anomaly, you throw it out. This temperature buoy should have been tossed from the record. Hottest seawater ever reported, ever measured. That's, that too is a lie. But let me just continue. First, one single seawater temperature on one single day, well, they said two days in a row, isn't an indicator of climate change, nor was it unprecedented. The buoy is located, some of you know Florida, it's located in Manatee Bay, very shallow water. It's, it's like a, saw, a swamp. It's not only shallow, but this water is swampy, dark, stagnant. And during a low tide, this buoy is basically sitting atop muck. In fact, I went back and checked the records. The day where it hit 101.1 was July 25th. The heat of the day occurred during a low tide. This buoy is not representative of the Atlantic Ocean temperatures. Second, the record at that location is actually 102 degrees. That same buoy had a, a warmer temperature back in 2017. It was 102. Now, when they say this is the hottest seawater ever, at this particular buoy, ocean temperatures only go back to 2004. Third, sea surface temperatures are actually not logged for record purposes like land readings are. So we don't really keep a record of all of the buoys scattered around the world. We don't, we don't do that. It's not like you know, the record temperature in your city, which is measured because people live there. and We want to know. Even so, even so, there is no indication that ocean temperatures are rising. There's none. It doesn't exist in the climatological record. Meantime, for decades, there have been ridiculous rumors of islands sinking due to rising waters. This is something Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, gave birth to. And, and people have been going with it ever since. Can I talk about sinking islands for just a moment? Do you mind here on the, on the Brian Sussman Show? And by the way, I appreciate your listenership. More on me at briansussman.com. Here's the deal. Let's go to 1987, October. And there's a man whose last name is Gayum. Gayum. He's the authoritarian ruler of the South Asia island chain, the Maldives. It's basically like a dictatorship. He presented an impassioned address to the United Nations in October 1987, declaring that his Indian Ocean nation of 250,000 citizens was threatened by a rising sea. He claimed a mean sea level rise of two meters would suffice to virtually submerge his entire country of 1,190 islands, most of which barely rise over two meters above mean sea level. That would be the death of a nation. That was his quote to the United Nations. Gayum insisted it was all related to global warming, Provoked and aggravated by man, his words. That was 1987. Environmentalists lapped it up. 
And the United Nations, they have this organization called the International Panel on Climate Change. They ran with the threat, stating unequivocally that sea level was rising, islands were sinking. Okay, that was 1987. So that's when all this started. I'm going to tell you about, I'm going to give you the rest of the story in just a moment. But I'm going to continue setting this up. Furthering the hype, in 2001, the leaders of Tuvalu. It's a small island midway between Hawaii and Australia. They announced they needed to evacuate their island because of rising oceans. Now, they wanted to take all their citizens, 11,000, and move them first to Australia. Australia said, nope. Then they wanted to go to New Zealand. New Zealand said, no way. Tuvalu and the Maldives are not being swamped by a rising ocean. In fact, if anything, in that part of the world, it looks as if sea levels may have fallen. Now, stay with me here, and I'm going to give you the rest of the story because it's really good. In 2004, there is a professor from the University of Stockholm. His last name is Morner, Niels Axel Morner. Professor Morner published a paper regarding his extensive research of the Maldives, and he noted, and I quote, in our study of the coastal dynamics and the geomorphology of the shores, we were unable to detect any traces of a recent sea level rise. So the Maldives and Tuvalu are saying, it's rising, it's rising, we got to get out, we need help. Dr. Morner says, there's nothing there. In fact, we found a recent fall in sea level. That's what he said. A recent fall in sea level. The study revealed sea, sea level in the Maldives had fallen approximately 11 inches over the last 50 years. In fact, additional research discovered about the time the leaders of Tuvalu created those headlines in 2001 saying we want to immigrate to Australia or New Zealand, sea level ar around their islands had fallen 2.5 inches. Now, this was even confirmed by Tuvalu's little meteorological service. They reported sea level reductions as well. Same thing on the Solomon Islands, which are nearby. In fact, <laughs> there's a professor, Patrick Nunn, who was teaching at the University of South Pacific in Fiji. He even said a lot of these sea gauges have been fall, slowly falling over the last five years. But the United Nations and the International Panel on Climate Change refused to budge. So I asked this question, what's really going on? Well, here's the rest of the story. The Maldives are flat atolls, flat islands composed of coral. They're not made of dirt, they're made of coral. Tourism was only introduced to the Maldives in 1972. There was this plush Karumba village resort. That was in 1972, one resort. Plush, people would go there, it's awesome. Now there are 160 resorts jammed primarily atop three atolls. Tourism in the Maldives is the leading industry. The locally mined coral rock has become the main aggregate for constructing these lavish resorts. Stay with me here. This is like sawing off the branch you're sitting on. The mining of the coral to build the resorts has severely compromised the atolls, the islands, creating the impression that they're sinking. 
those, those islands were not meant for this kind of habitation. That's why they're sinking. Second, Tuvalu. Their problem isn't climate change. It's not tourism. They only have about 2,000 tourists a year. Their tropical island mess is this. They were never meant for modern habitation. Listen to me here. The primary indigenous vegetable crop, taro, has been greatly overfarmed. All of their food has to be brought in. There's not even fresh water on the island, only what can be cached from rain. So what they get, get from rain, they have, to, they have to bring in water. Much of the population on the, on the main island uses a lagoon from bathe, for bathing and toilet facilities. Its commercial waste, just like in the Maldives, is transported to landfills in Fiji and New Zealand by ship. Tuvalu is a tropical island in turmoil, and politicians have used global warming as a shakedown operation to try get stuff. In a 2007 press release, the Tuvalu government actually said this. The prime minister of Tuvalu said that major greenhouse polluters should pay for Tuvalu and the impacts of climate change. This is a shakedown operation. A shakedown operation. So now I go back to Professor Morner from Sweden, 2018. He was asked about the IPCC's estimate of sea level rise. And he didn't pull any punches. He said, I've been researching sea level changes my entire life, traveling to 59 countries. Hardly any other researcher has so much experience in this field. However, the IPCC has always misrepresented the facts on this topic. It exaggerates the risks of sea level rise enormously. I could go on if you'd like me to, but I'm just telling you. The IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, the UN's International Panel on Climate Change, was founded with the implicit purpose of validating the hypothesis, or theory, if you will, of anthropogenic man-caused climate change. That's why the IPCC exists, to incessantly warn against it. And like cunning marketers use the supposedly tainted atmosphere as an agent of political, economic, and social change. No matter what the facts of the agenda's influencers are, they present scenarios to invoke a natural sense of alarm, and then, without missing a beat, they provide the remedies. Sustainable development, social justice, social equity. That's what they do. And they do it pretty darn well quite frankly, because they've got most of the world scared into submission. You know, it's, it's amazing because fossil fuels account for 85% of the world's energy consumption. 85%. What's the big plan now? Net zero, net zero, we're going to get rid of all fossil fuels. This is, this is absolutely impossible. You, could, you can't do this. Well, you could if you want to knock us back into the Stone Age. Solar and wind will not do it. Solar and wind require a full-time backup of something. Natural gas, coal, nuclear, hydro. They need a full-time backup. Well, can't even say hydro. Natural gas or, or, or nuclear. They need, a, they need a full-time backup or coal. So how are you going to do this? Well, we'll have battery power. Do you know how expensive the batteries would be? And by the way, what are we going to do with all that toxic uh, lithium ion in the batteries. No one can figure out how to, how to uh, recycle this yet. 
85% of the world's energy consumption comes from fossil fuels. It's, I think it's, I should have this figure before me. I think it's like 13%. 13% is, is renewable right now. Net zero would, can I tell you something? You couldn't even build a pencil if net zero went into effect. Say goodbye to everything made of plastic. Everything made of plastic, um, you know, toothpaste containers, deodorant containers, cosmetics, the little bottles of store medicine, much of your furniture, your car, your tools, your toys, all consist of various amount of plastic. What are you going to do? It's all made from petrochemicals. How about the foam in your, in your, in your pillow? You need fossil fuel. You need, you need fossil fuels for this, petrochemicals. Same thing with your clothing. Unless your entire wardrobe is made from natural fibers, you have clothes with nylon, polyester, rayon, many other things derived from fossil fuel derivatives. Look at the roof over your head, the asphalt roof, the tar paper below it. Hello, oil. Oh, you could go with a metal roof. I don't know how it would be founded and fabricated without the heat created by fossil fuels. And by the way, the, the metal roof would have to be unpainted because... All of the paint relies on petroleum products as well. How about the cement in your home? The bricks. Virtually impossible to power a cement plant plant with wind and solar. You couldn't do it. (laughs) Even even the little pencil, as I mentioned, you couldn't do this without fossil fuels. There's a great little story that was written in 1964 by a guy named Leonard Reed. Leonard Reed. I'm going to read just a portion of this to you. It's it's a genealogy from the perspective of a pencil. And by the way, don't forget, debate me Al Gore. That's my Twitter feed. Debate me Al Gore. Please go there and check in. Here's the genealogy from the perspective of a pencil written in 1964 by Leonard Reed. My family tree begins with what, in fact, is a tree. A cedar of straight grain that grows in Northern California and Oregon. Now contemplate all the saws, you know, power saws and trucks and rope and countless other gear used in harvesting and carting the cedar logs to the railroads. Think of all the persons and the, num- and the numberless skills that went into their fabrication, the mining of ore, the making of steel, its refinement into saws, axes, motors, the growing of the hemp and bringing it through all the stages to, to heavy and strong rope. The logs are shipped to a mill in San Leandro, California. Can you imagine the individuals who make the flat cars and the rail cars and the railroad engines and who construct and install the communication systems hitherto? The cedar logs are cut into small pencil-length slats, less than one-fourth of an inch in thickness. They're kiln-dried. They're tinted. How many skills went into the making of the tint and the kilns and supplying the heat and the light and the power and the belts and the motors and all the other things the mills require? And then he gets into the lead, (laughs) which is not lead at all, but graphite mined in India, transported to the United States aboard ships. Once in the U.S., the graphite is mixed with Mississippi clay. Ammonium hydroxide is then used for refining the process. So is sulfuric acid. The mixture is 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 cut to size, dried, baked in an industrial oven for hours at 1,850 degrees Fahrenheit. The cedar pencil receives six coats of lacquer. The metal holding the eraser is made of brass and nickel. 
The eraser is made by reacting rapeseed oil with sulfur chloride. You need fossil fuels. You need petroleum. You need petrochemicals. You need all of that just to make a, a pencil. Oh, we'll do it with solar and wind. Garbage. Garbage, garbage, garbage. Friends, we need the truth now more than ever. And I pray that God will just change the hearts and minds of those on the left and also wake up those who are part of this cult who just believe it. They've been told what to think, not how to think, and they believe it. God help us. God help us. Friends, thank you for listening. More on me at briansussman.com. And hey, debate me, Al Gore. Really appreciate you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. God bless you, friends. Until next time.